You're listening to the Cool Collaborations Podcast, a podcast about success in collaboration, where we hear about collaboration successes from around the world, and we'll look into what made those collaborations work. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Hello, and welcome to episode number 39 of the Cool Collaborations Podcast. This week, it's my privilege to speak with Sharon Fraser and Jennifer Chaplin, two of the three founding directors of an Australian consultancy called Clarion Call. Sharon hails from a health background, while Jennifer comes from more of a service system background. Both Jennifer and Sharon have a huge depth of experience and skill for creating spaces where community voices can be heard and systems-level change can occur. In our conversation today, we touch a little on what Sharon and Jennifer do, some of the key collaboration ingredients and examples of those, and then we spend some time unpacking the idea of collaborative governance. Please enjoy our conversation. Sharon and Jennifer, how are you guys today? Really well, thanks. How are you, Scott? I'm doing all right. How about you, uh, Jennifer? Oh, very good. I would say uh, it's... uh verging on bucketing rain so we might have a nice little bit of sound in the background to listen oh. to rain from a very remote part of the world it'll be like a meditation vibe going on here. almost <laughs> pattering rain in the background so thank you for for joining the podcast today i was wondering maybe let's just start off with you guys introducing yourselves and just telling me a little bit about sort of who you are and a little bit of your background let's share and let's let's start with you So um, my name is Sharon Fraser and I'm one of the founding directors for Clarion Call that I hold with Jennifer Chaplin and an amazing man called Jack Beetson. And my background was originally in health and community health and I kept on this quest for how can I really make a contribution to have impact and it really led to seeking where is their purpose And how do we create enough energy behind that purpose to make something happen? So I live in central Victoria, which is a beautiful part of the world. And so I I live and and generally work on Jara country, which is the land of the Jajarang. Today I'm coming to you from my sister's house in South Australia. (laughs) But wherever I am, I like to acknowledge that we're standing on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lands and that we like to acknowledge the elders, past, present and emerging, and to note for us here in Australia that this land was never ceded. So that's about me, really. Boy, that was pretty quick. How about you, Jennifer? Thanks. That's a beautiful lead-in, Sharon. So I'm my name is Jennifer Chaplin, and I'm joining you today from Wajak Noongar country in the city of Perth. So Sharon and I are actually quite far apart geographically from each other. My background was primarily in service system integration, so how NGOs work together to provide a more seamless experience for people that they support. And the challenge of that work over the years, I guess, became more and more evident to me that, firstly, you can't solve complexity by working with just one element of a system, but also the collaboration and how we do that is really pivotal in in success and viewing that differently. So Sharon and I sort of aligned from a a similar background around how do we work together differently to achieve some specific outcomes that we, yeah, that we work on together. How do we help people do hard stuff better together? (laughs) How do we help hard? 
Okay, so that one would be. I have to listen back for that to to catch it. Sound like a sound like a t shirt there. I don't know. Oh, there so you go. Tell, so, so tell me, tell me the story of how you met and how the three of you met and how you kind of came to get together in this thing you're calling. It's called Clarion Call, right? Yeah, yeah that's, right. that's right. That's right. So Jennifer and I were both doing associate work for another group called Co- Collaboration for Impact, and okay. we had. We were aware of each other in the ether for a while because of that. And then through that um, organization got to do got to do go to convenings together about that organization. And then as a part of that organization leading some conferences, Jennifer and I sort of got to do some uh, bits and pieces of work together, but nothing really in depth, just just really some bits and pieces. And then following those conferences, there was some work that was about a government who was wanting to show up differently in community. And as a part of that, they were looking for how do we step into community as partners rather than funders? And how do we assess with community where the community is up to in terms of their journey of working collaboratively for some sort of significant change? And Jennifer and I worked together on that and just found that, you know, we had this great <laughs> symbiotic relationship. <laughs> so at a later stage, we then co-authored a, a paper on collaborative governance. And again, it just felt like the sum was greater than the individual parts. In addition to that, I had worked with Jack um, off and on and again found he is an Aboriginal man who's from far west New South Wales but lives in Sydney and just found that the way that he brings culture and cultural wisdom into the work was phenomenal. But when we first set up Clarion Call, it was about at the start of COVID. It wasn't very many months before COVID hit. So even though we've been working on this and enjoying this and growing this and really stepping out to make a difference, Jack and Jennifer have never met each other in person. <laughs> because No, we haven't. And we haven't, we haven't, Sharon and I haven't physically been in a room together since we started Clarion Call. We had before then, but all of this has been a remote collaboration. Mm. <laughs> that just um, feels like it's been going forever. <laughs> Is the focus of the work, of your work, sort of social types of issues, social, call it social innovation, or is it broader than that? Are there other pieces, health or environment, other things that pop up? I think one of the ways that might be helpful to think about that is, um, it's interesting, I would have, when you first said, is it social? My first thought was, yes, it is. But I would put all of that into the bucket of it benefits people. There's There's a human benefit that's around, you know, equity, inclusion. So it's tackling the ultimate outcome, you know, the ultimate outcome of health is also social. So that people that people are better off as a result of the work of the collaboration. What would you add to that, Sharon? Yeah, a bit of a, a twist on the same theme. If you think of things like the UN Sustainability Development Goals, or you think yeah. of the likes of social determinants of health, we're often, we often talk about how we isolate some of these issues yeah. so that we say, oh, it's a health issue or it's a housing issue or it's a poverty issue. Whereas in reality, that is not how people live their lives. It's not how systems function. It's not how the world works. And so Jennifer and I are in a way issue agnostic yeah. because 
we believe that they're all intertwined and that siloing these issues off really doesn't help you achieve impact. It really doesn't help you get some sort of significant difference. So an example of that might be some work that I was involved in a while ago, which was about family violence and it was about, you know, tackling family violence within a community that was, you know, had very high levels of family violence and they had 78% of family violence incidents had a child or young person present. So it was a community that was travelling a bit rough. Mm -hmm. And because the purse strings and the resourcing around family violence was held by the service system, they were very much looking at, at a service system response, whereas the women who were experiencing family violence, they wanted financial independence. They wanted to have it so that their family benefits in Australia, I don't know how it is in Canada, but in Australia, if if you are living in poverty, once you have a child with someone, your income around government support is tied up with that person forever. So they can be in jail for having nearly killed you and the kids, but your, in, your child support benefits are tied up with that person. So what these women wanted was financial independence. If we hold the issue as a family violence issue, and we hold it as a service issue, it stops us from broadening our thinking to being, no, it's a social issue and it's about equity of access to Mm -hmm. financial independence. It's actually about poverty. So that's why we don't don't follow down really so much an issues-based response. We really follow the global notions of, oh, how do we build equity? And bringing people together with such diverse ways of thinking that we can actually look at this thing in lots of different ways to not lock it into it's a this sort of issue too early. The thought that's coming to my mind is I had an interview just um, a little while ago with Thea Snow, and she was speaking about this idea that in her case, it was about government thinking it's always outside of the ecosystem. <laughs> and it, it strikes me that what you're speaking mm. about is, is viewing issues in the ecosystem, right? It's mm. not about an issue for itself, it's about all the connections across that ecosystem, which I found that thinking quite helpful myself. But mm, mm, it's, absolutely. It's, it's really incredible to think about all of the implications once we start viewing the world that way for things even beyond how, how we tackle the issue, because it, it impacts people's views on who and how we collaborate as well. So if yeah. we're thinking of it in an issue-specific way, like let's say the early years, improving outcomes for children zero to five in our community, that as soon as we think about it that way, people tend to convene you know, collaborators <laughs> or stakeholders within that little box. But the yeah. things that impact what's happening on children zero to five go far outside the early years. So unpicking that notion in people's mindset right away and looking at how we broaden that and how we build a collaboration around it is, is really critical to actually making a difference to it. So knowing that, you know, we have these issues popping up all of the time, right? We have people, whether it's poverty issues or food security or environment or whatever it might be, how do they get onto your radar? Like, how do you get drawn into this, into this mix so that you can actually start to help people see it at an ecosystem level? Yes, it's an interesting one, that, because <laughs> many people approach us very much not from an ecosystem perspective. It's very, very rare that a collaboration or a partnership would come to us saying, we're seeing this issue broadly across the ecosystem and we want to want you to come in and show us how to work that through. But what what is the hook for us and what helps 
helps their work but also helps us identify whether this is our work is is there a clear purpose going on here is there a clear we want to improve outcomes for aboriginal children or we want to include housing security or we want to understand and address food security so that there is something that people are wanting to convene around that is not about we want to do service coordination because we want to make sure people work through our services better or it's not about we actually think if we come together in partnership it'll give us funding power so that we'll be able to get more funding into our organisations to address poverty or to address housing etc. So we really try to tease out is there a genuine purpose here and sometimes that's not explicit. Sometimes there's a passion and an interest and people are discontent with what is currently going on. But so they might not have that clearly articulated. And so a part of what we might do is to help them get that out, to help yeah. to help see that, to help get clarity around that. Jen, is there anything you wanted to say about that? Yeah. I was thinking that people, from a technical point of view, people approach us because of the way we facilitate. So the, the golden rule of facilitation is you can't be in a conversation and facilitate it at the same time. And so people often come to us because they want people to support them through a facilitated process. So we're not consultants in a sense, and you don't buy a, an output from us. We work together. We work and walk alongside you and communities to come together differently. And one of the primary vehicles for that is facilitation. And so people often know us through that work as well. And then once we're in that in the conversation, we can then start through that process, broadening people's thinking and mindset about what they're trying to do. So I'm reminded of a the very first podcast I ever ever recorded was with Stephanie Roy McCallum. And she mentioned this idea. We're talking about the impartiality of facilitators. And so what you just mentioned kind of twigged in my head this idea that one of the things that she mentioned, and I tend tend to agree with her, and I'm kind of going to put this out there and see what you guys think, is that facilitators can't be neutral. Like they can't mm. For all of the the guys of taking them out, you know, being a unbiased sort of third party or whatever, that they're actually a big part of the conversation, even though they are not. I would yeah. say I agree with that. You know, I, yeah, absolutely. And I w- I would never say that we go into a room and put ourselves up as unbiased or put ourselves no. up as not having. We go in there to actually help work on not only structures and processes but how people are thinking about something uh, yeah. and how they are understanding how power is showing up in this work. Like are, are people people with formal authority stepping all over people with informal authority? Is there cultural authority here? Where is the voice of community in this work? So for us, uh, we, we believe that there are certain ingredients that you need to have and have explicitly in an ecosystem in order to both understand it but then to do something about it. So we come in with that belief. We come in with our own beliefs and theories about that. And and building on what you said earlier, that, you know, the example of government being sometimes viewing itself as outside the ecosystem, we are deeply mindful that we are part of that ecosystem. There's no interaction with others that that doesn't create a result. And so the challenge for us is, because we, we've actually hit on something we've spoken a lot about in terms of really working out who we are and what we do. And, and that is that it's not our community. So while we, we are not intentionally part of the solution, we are 
holding a role that we are constantly mindful of having power attributed to us being in that position and working to give that away to others who are in that community in an ongoing way. So we're not intermediaries ourselves. We work with others behind the scenes in a way, even if you include facilitation and that to help communities achieve their goals. So when Sharon said we're issue agnostic, it's because the clarion call in the community is the communities. It's not ours. Right. Sharon, you mentioned this idea of key ingredients and I'm sort of likening that in my head to key ingredients for collaboration. So I'm, I might be, that might be a stretch, but my question would be, what are the key ingredients that you're referring to? Like what, if you were to define collaboration or take it apart to its key ingredients, what would they be? For us, we, we believe that a lot of the initial part of the work is getting shared understanding. So we work to help support communities see the things that they're interested in from different perspectives So it might be what does the data say. It's definitely what does the community say. And it's often looking at what's already playing out across known systems. What are the relationships? Who's showing up for this? And um, what's happening in the formal system? Who's showing up for it in the community? What are the relationships with people? Who are the leaders around it? And sometimes those questions come from the issue itself and sometimes it comes from what's already done and what's already known in the community. So you're you often, you, you know, you're taking in there's often a lot of information that people have never prosecuted together. So yeah. sometimes what it is is just bringing all of that stuff together and having something like a data party. You know, how do you, yeah. how, what are we going to do with all of this stuff? Let's, you know, let's look at it all together. So it's very much built on shared foundation. And then once we, uh, we look at the shared foundation, we look at, so what is it that we are wanting to hold together and often at that, those initial stages, it's usually a fairly formal vision statement. So people will come out, out with something that sounds quite, so for, in, for example, you might say, we're here to make sure that all children thrive and reach their full potential. Then what we do is we work to get as many people as possible around that vision to unpack it and to have it sit deeply in community. So. Uh, within that, we help people build structures and processes. So there might be working groups to help do some of that stuff. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to get the the pond of people who are having an input into this work as broad as possible. And then once there is a real sort of real deep understanding about that this is a thing and that we need to do something about it, we often do convenings with people about around so what is the thing that we are all working towards? And at that stage, the children uh, thrive and meet, meet their full potential might shift. And it usually shifts to something that's more, got more community resonance. So, for example, it might shift to something like all our kids are loved and safe. So we're really working to build energy, to build excitement around the thing that we're working on. And then we step into how how to set up the structures and processes like things like action groups to give something a go. So how do we then uh, step in and learn together and do reflection together? And we often hold the work within communities for that change in a 90-day cycle. Rather than putting out a three-year strategy plan, we'll hold the change that we're doing in a 90-day cycle. I want to pick up on one of the, the points that you made, Sharon, if I think about key ingredients. 
Um, Because the first thing that leapt to mind, I went to data as well, that we have to found all of this on, you know, data for design, discovery, design and decision making. But the other is diversity and that there is no version of collaboration around these kind of complex issues that doesn't deeply embrace diversity and and i don't mean that sort of one-dimensional notion of oh that person represents this group or that person is different from me it's our beliefs our values the context we come from you know differences of culture views that we are all richer for bringing that together and sharon and i laugh about that amongst ourselves we have a really we have a similar set of values but a different skill set that we bring to it we need to really found this work on a passionate culture for learning culture practices and using data to inform that and data that continues to evolve over time and looks different as we go. But the other one that comes up for me is diversity. And that is really around deeply valuing the different mindset, skill set, views, values that people bring. Building collaborations is crunchy work. It's not easy, but it's all the better for just really embracing the differences that people bring to get a better outcome for the, you know, get a better result. And, you know, we often laugh amongst about that amongst ourselves, that you and I are aligned around our values and the ways that we work, but we bring slightly different skill sets to that. And it gets a better result than the sum of the individual parts. So helping people see the depth of what diversity really brings to the work is, is absolutely critical. So I definitely put that near the top of the key ingredients list. Do you have an example? Like, does an example come to mind where diversity has shown up in a really spectacular way, like the benefits of diversity? Is there an example that pops to mind from your experience? Hmm. There is in some recent anti-poverty work that we were working on where we had people who were providing, say, food security, housing security, local government, those type of folk. And there was a lot of work done up front before we did the convening around the voice of people with lived experience of poverty. And one of the real shifts that happened was people who were there from the from the more formal system were talking about how do we help, how do we lift people out of poverty, whereas the people who had been or were living in poverty were very much about it's not about lifting or helping anyone. It's very much about the thing that holds people in poverty is very much a perception about a a belief whether you can get out or not. Mm. So the issue isn't about you helping. It's about how do we shift that belief so that people believe they can get out of poverty. And a part of shifting that belief is about having enough things there to show that it can happen. Right. Is there one that you'd like to um, mention, Jen? I think it's funny. I um I thought of all of them at the same time, and my brain kind of went poof. Um, and they're all they're all really recent. It's it's almost hard to to tell the story. I think one that really stands out is I've been doing some work in a local community in Western Australia, supporting people to come together around improving outcomes for Aboriginal children under five. And this work was the way that we stepped into it was to deeply ground it in the context of the local Aboriginal community. So typically governments come in and then, you know, the usual NGOs lead it. And we worked very hard, myself and two other uh, West Australian facilitators who are First Nations women, worked very hard to keep this conversation 
um, in the head, hearts and hands of Aboriginal people. And sort of at the very end of the process, we brought in uh, all of the other en- local NGOs, so non-Aboriginal-led not-for-profits. And we were in this conversation, and what, what I noticed started to happen for me when we talk about ourselves being part of the ecosystem was as soon as the conversation turns to service system, for me it becomes the conversation I've had a million times before. Like, I, you know, it's it's great and it's wonderful to you know, hear what people have to say, but it's not really new and different for me. And and there, because you start to hear the same kind of things, I, I found myself starting to get a bit anxious about it and um, was reflecting with my co-facilitators afterwards. And, and one of the local First Nations leaders had crossed the floor in the back of the room midway through and said to my colleague, this is amazing. This is the conversation we never have. And it absolutely blew my mind afterwards that even the things that we find might be usual for us, whatever they may be, are not usual for others. And the power of having the Aboriginal-led NGOs and the non-Aboriginal-led NGOs in a room together already started this really passionate conversation about what we could do without any formal authority, without any money, just to start working better together uh, for Aboriginal children. But it was sort of that, the thing that stood out for me was that the diversity, even in conversations that seem usual, still can have a massive impact. And that really kicked off some huge conversations that I actually never didn't see coming, even as the facilitator. So you've talked a a little bit now in, in a couple of examples, you've mentioned working with Indigenous communities. And I'm curious, from your experience, how how does collaboration change or does it change across cultures? Like if we're working across cultures, are there some different ingredients that need to be mixed in the in the batter? This this analogy is only going to go so far. So <laughs> yeah. the first thing I I deeply want to acknowledge that I will never stop feeling new <laughs> in this space. But the thing that that I'm most constantly at all about and passionate about is is that notion of authority. Mm. And there, there are things that we can, that people cannot see. And so I, being who I am, there are things that travel through a room and a conversation or that happen through collaboration in terms of power and authority that are completely unknown to me. And so the goal is always, I always use that analogy of the Storks movie. I don't know if you've ever seen that kids movie Storks. And there's a, there's a joke about Storks can't see glass and they always fly into windows and I always use the analogy that I, I really want to not fly into the glass because I can't see it. And so firstly, we need others in a room to make visible to us the things that that aren't. But for me, the thing that um, that I'm constantly trying to hold and constantly see the power of is that notion of authority. Because we tend to, if I think about traditional statutory authority and even things like government and typical collaborations and we come together around X, we tend to think that we can see the authorizing environment in that room or that we are it. And it's just not the case. Yeah. And so there's something about how you hold power and be mindful of authority that, well, there's no way the work will be successful without cultural Mm. authority. For us too, like Jen talked about stepping into this facilitation recently with two Aboriginal facilitators and we have Jack and we lean heavily on Jack in terms of how we understand and how we bring our work into our communities where uh, we're really, and, and, and we do want to include the voices of First Nations because no matter how 
experienced or how skilled we believe we are, we will never be First Nations people. And so to really bring First Nations authority, to really bring First Nations voice into work, we believe that we need to do it in partnership with First Nations facilitators, First Nations people, because as Jennifer said, there's a whole lot of stuff goes on that we just don't see. I remember being in a room once with Jack and I was the only, uh, no, there was me and one other woman. We were the only two white Australians in the room. And there was a young man who was talking about some stuff, which, which to me was, you know, explaining stuff that was going on. So as a facilitator in the room, I found, found this really enlightening and found it quite powerful. Jack called a stop to the proceedings and asked for myself and the other white woman to leave the room invited us back in, we went back on you know, with our work and then at lunchtime said to me and this other woman, I hope you don't mind me asking you to step out, since that young fellow was about to break Aboriginal law and he would be punished as soon as he left the room. So I did it as a protective factor for him. What mm. he was about to say he shouldn't be saying in front of two yeah. white women. So if you don't go into this work with people who have been raised and as a part of and are a part of the culture, then you actually can't do the work deeply enough and respectfully enough, we believe. I think just um, building on that point, Sharon, there are things that we will never know and should never, and I think that's the difference. If we think about typical you know, typical uh, forms of learning and work that we do, we think, oh, fine, I'll know enough one day and I'll be fine. There is no version of that that will ever happen for us, nor should it. And so we always, always need to be working with people who – have that power, authority, knowledge, and skills that we don't, nor should we. So it's actually that collaboration that adds the value in our role. It's almost like we're empowered by what we don't know or shouldn't know rather than what we do know or should know. You know, it just strikes me that if we loop this back to the conversation around sort of the ecosystem, you need all of the pieces of the ecosystem for it to function. And also how, because I've I've worked quite extensively with government, and so I have this idea of how government will often not always, but will often put themselves in this position of being, like I say, outside the system. And therefore, they don't understand the dynamics that are happening. And so then they just blunder around and make a big mess out of things half the time. So (laughs) one of the things you mentioned at the top of the, the conversation was some work you did on collaborative governance. And I wanted to go in that direction. I'm not sure if this is a good segue from where we were to here, but I kind of want to unpack that a little bit. It's actually one of the reasons I reached out to you in the very first place, because this term caught my attention and I wanted you to unpack it a little bit. So who wants to, who wants to start off? Sharon, <laughs> do you want to kick us off with a, uh, a dive into collaborative governance? Yeah, beautiful. Often when people come together to form a partnership or a collaboration or they've got one going, they very much think of the formal governance. So they hold the partnership the way that they hold their organisational governance. So they'll have terms of references, they'll have a chair, they'll have agenda, they'll have minutes, they'll have decision-making processes that sit very much as a board would have it or as a management team would have it. What we believe, and and, others do as well, it's not just a clarion call thing, (laughs) is that when organisations step out of just that organisational boundary, and organisations and or people who are stepping into it as just in their own right as a community member, when they come together to do something different, that there are parts of that governance that work, 
but there are there are other things that are called for for how you hold that work. So, for example, as Jennifer has said, there is something about not pulling people together on a formal skill only, but you pull people together not only for the skill that they have on the topic, but the skill that they have on the context, the networks they have, so that the type of people that you have in that governance may be different. The way that you bring people together may be different. So, for example, if you've got people from different cultures, different educational backgrounds, etc., you might want to have the way that you meet be less dense in documents. You wouldn't be sending out 96 pages of board papers to the group to be able to make decisions. I've seen collaborations with First Nations people do that. There's one that's still going on. I see it happen, particularly when they're government-led. So they want it all government-funded, all the money's come from government, and they want to have everything um, held in an accountable, transparent way. So it's often coming from the best of places. So often what we do is look to say, well, maybe you don't need to have a terms of reference. Maybe you can have a commitment statement. Maybe you don't need a memorandum of understanding. Maybe just, again, one-page commitment statement, maybe you do. Maybe you don't need to have an agenda. Maybe you just need to have um, a facilitated process and an agreement on the work that you're doing together. Yeah. Maybe you don't need minutes. Maybe you need just you just need some notes. So what we do is we look to have who comes together, when they need to come together, and how they need to come together in order to serve the purpose instead of in order to look like it's good formal governance. So that's sort of the overarching approach. Do you want to add something to that, Jen? Yeah, I was thinking about um, that notion of accountability and artifacts. So what happens, um, thinking back to, you know, we, we come together in the typical way is that all of a sudden we use the, the artifacts and you mentioned terms of reference, for example, that whoever the dominant force is thinks are how, thinks that's how things are done, but we need to challenge every bit of that. So what are the, what are the things that give us authority? What are the things that represent commitment? And how do we hold accountability within that in different ways? in service of the purpose that we're trying to achieve. So things are highly flexible, but challenge, you end up challenging everything because you think you, sometimes um, collaborations, you know, they're coming together and they've got this, it's facilitated and, you know, things are ticking along. And then somebody says, and when are we doing the MOUs? <laughs> like you're like, you're just unpicking every single construct that we have about what the ingredients are that bring a collaboration together and that help it hum. And that continues the whole time. Yeah, that's right. And sometimes too, you need to be mindful because I know I've been a part of work that's gone too far, too fast. And, you know, I've been driving yeah. it to go too far, too fast. So, for example, when I was working within community before I started doing this work, say with a clarion call, I, I got rid of all of that stuff from formal structures like overnight. And the CEO of the health service freaked out so much that he went to the minister and demanded that we get defunded <laughs> for doing this work. Because there wasn't enough in it. Oh, it's huge. There wasn't enough in it. He thought it it, it turned into this left-wing heebie-jeebie stuff. There wasn't enough of his world in it for him yeah. to be able to connect with it. So it, it is, a, <laughs> it is a, a balancing act to how far you go and how fast you change. But Jennifer and I believe deeply in the work of Robert Flood that although it's back a bit now, his whole idea of it's not only the structures and the processes that we're putting in place to hold this together, but it's the thinking or the mindsets and power and how power is held yeah. 
And we try and bring all four of those concepts in when we're bringing, building collaborative governance. The other thing, the other concept that we hold in this collaborative governance is building governance for what you need now, not the Taj Mahal of governance. <laughs> so you don't have to have all of your working groups mapped out and they'll do all of this and all of your action groups mapped out and they'll do all of this. In fact, when the partnership starts, often these partnerships that start on purpose start with three, four people who have come together who want to do something different. So it's very much building the, as Jennifer says, building the aeroplane as you're going. Yeah. I was thinking there's, there's a group that I'm working with out west um, who started there, they've been going for five years and they've just at the point in their collaboration now of adding in multiple working groups. They actually, their whole structure was one group for a really long time. And that group held enough. It was good enough and it got strong enough that they could add different layers, but it took, it took time to get to that point. And that's fine because it suited the purpose. So to Sharon's point, it doesn't need to be the Taj Mahal with all the flashy bits if you, if you want to kill a collaboration, start with too much structure too soon. <laughs> There's a key yeah. ingredient for you. Don't do that. Yeah. Add bureaucracy. That'll make it work. Add, yeah. add bureaucracy <laughs> and lots of artifacts and, and documents and things that we think represent power that, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Nothing, nothing says success like a project management approach. Oh, don't. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I'm, I'm watching you both cringe. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other thing too that we really hold deeply in this building of this collaborative governance is how is the voice of community and people who are not in positions of formal power, how are they? How do yeah. they become a part of this decision-making? So that this government, governance doesn't hold people who speak on behalf of but really holds the voice of people whose lives are affecting. And how, if you're looking at it in a more the traditional formal governance way of things, what people often do is they, they find someone in the community and pop them onto a committee, mm-hmm. and then that may or may not work. And what happens is there's often so much um, traditional governance there that either the community voice becomes captive to that system and they just start behaving the same as others around the table or that person's voice is shut down because they don't know how to get their voice out, or everybody else shuts down their own voice because they don't want to step on the voice of the person from the community. Any one of those is not going to serve your purpose. And so we work to help people think creatively about how to build in the voice of lived experience into the governance itself. And sometimes that group might have a formal name. So, for example, in the family violence example I was speaking about earlier, they had a family violence action group that no woman of lived, with lived experience of family violence wanted to be on, partly because some of them were still living in unsafe relationships or they were in this community to hide from someone who they had an unsafe relationship with. So they wanted anonymity. So we approached them about, well, how do you want to do this? And they wanted to come together. And they wanted to have this action group, the formal action group, not make a decision without their voice in it, but they wanted to convene themselves and they wanted to convene in ways that would help them heal. So they called themselves the Family Violence Reference Group, but often we we would come together to discuss things over built an art activity or a craft Mm. activity and we would always have a healing part of the session because it was really important to these women that they did some healing. And although we convened that and resourced that and helped communicate between the groups, we kept out of 
the conversation. So we were just creating an environment for those conversations to happen in. And they they came to some incredible points, these women, without an agenda, without a minute taker, without a terms of reference, because they came together to make a difference around family violence and to heal and to help heal others. For that example, I'm just curious, I wanted to dig in because I was curious about the ideas for how you were proceeding. Are they coming from the community or are they coming from you guys as facilitators or is it a bit of both? Like, is it a bit of you see something, uh, you know, a light bulb comes on and you sort of give voice to it to see what what resonates? Like, how does the dynamic work in terms of self-guided and yet facilitated at the same time? Yeah, the the best ideas come over time. So we can, as we talked about before, we can look at the data, we can bring in the story from community, we can look at the system mapping, and we can do a convening around it with all of these all of these different ways of looking at this issue. What is it that we think will have the highest impact that we have the highest authority in, and how are we going to step into that together? And at that transition point, people often jump back to. Well, I've got this great idea, or my organisation <laughs> does this, or um, yeah. uh, a, a, and oh. the ideas that come out, you could have asked for three months ago before you did all of this shared understanding together. So, at any of those transition points are risk points for people going back into their usual behaviour. So, often one of the first things you look, you step into might be the same work that you might have stepped into before, but you you work to step into it differently. So sometimes you might say, okay, then, so we're going to do this thing that, you know, that's around services, service access, say, for an example. So let's do this thing around service access. Let's do it differently this time. What's the outcome that we think we're going to get to in three months? How will we know that we're getting there? How will we reflect and learn along the way? And how are we going to keep doing the things that, that are successful? And how are we going to stop doing the things that aren't working? So sometimes those, the work starts with stuff that looks really familiar, but you're nudging it to be done yeah. differently. But often over time, particularly when you have the voice of lived experience there, these ideas like the financial security one that I came out with, they come up. You know, you, you start to, there starts to be enough relationship, enough trust enough experience playing together for people to start peeling that onion back a bit. And picking up on it as they go, right? So they're yeah, yeah. they're riffing off of one another. So Exactly, exactly. If I think about that, um, building on that notion of facilitation, that our role as facilitators is really to help people see the ecosystem they're in. So we're constantly, rather than you, it, the question I heard that I interpreted from what you were asking, Scott, was almost like around who makes the decisions about you know, what happens next, if you will. And what we're doing is facilitating a conversation so everyone can see the soup they're in. And by doing that and reflecting back to people what they're seeing, what they're doing, what's happening, they then can make decisions. So we as facilitators are acting in service of that through making what is implicit, explicit, and what is invisible, visible. And the way that Jen's talked about facilitation before too, we're not talking about a day's planning session together. No. <laughs> so this is about going on a journey and we're not, we're not there all the time. We come in and out of community at different points, at transition points, at 
the work at this stage has been done, how are we going to move to the next stage? So how are we going to move from this understanding into implementation? Or how are we going to engage people who are not have not had an interest in this stuff before but we think are critical? So, for example, the local business community, how are we going to engage local business in outcomes for children, something like that? Yeah. So we very much come in and out to help nudge and move things along to the next level of development that, that's needed. That's awesome. Oh, and doing that, I was thinking the analogy we talked about, if we, we try to think of an analogy for our work and it's a bit like we, we go in, we're invited in by community to do exactly what Sharon was saying and we drop our tool bag on the ground or imagine a big ice hockey bag and we open it up and we start looking at what's in it and then everyone else drops their tool bag on the ground and we look at what we've all got and then we put it together. And our, our goal is really explicitly that we are not needed. Or as Jack would say, we're forgotten by the 80 kilometer an hour sign as we leave town. You know, that we, while we're walking alongside, we're not deeply in the work because it isn't our clarion call. So we're, we come in as needed, but we're not, we're not holding the work with authority as we go along because it's not our work. Right. You know, we're, we're coming towards the end, and I just wanted to ask if there was anything that I haven't asked you that you wanted to touch on before we do a couple of closing questions. Anything that jumps out? I think the main thing for me is that none of this is shiny and none of this <laughs> is perfect. No. And that we don't go into communities going, we have the Sermon from the Mount about how, <laughs> how you can take this how you can take this idea and you will achieve population level outcome. I think we very much work with communities, work with with people who are showing up within four communities to help understand and to, to nudge to the next piece and to bring whatever we have to assist. And we try to bring in the depth of experience that we have at working with numbers of communities to do that. But if this was a way, a thing that you could put into a recipe, Jennifer Chaplin would have written the recipe book by now and we'd all be looking at it. Oh, she's a great codifier. Yeah. <laughs> so I just wanted to make that point. Yeah, and I was thinking, you know, we've talked a lot about this, eh, Sharon, that it's it's not about fitting. We genuinely meet communities and collaborations where they actually are mess and all. And then we're not about fitting them into our process so it's not like, well, you're, you're in step A, one, two, you know, and it looks like this. We, we literally build the, the elements of something with a community based on our experience of what works for different things that they're trying to do. It could be about valuing, you know, context expertise or building part of a structure um, using, using data to understand what's happening in a community. But we come in boots and all, mess and all, um, and really embrace that. And look at building building on what works and what people know and know how to do and are doing in their community as well. So putting all of those elements together. So very experimental in a way, like experimenting your way through to, to success. Yeah, which is actually how you get the success anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Holding some theoretical frameworks in the background that you know, inform our work. Um, so it's not that we're just going in there. Uh, having a new crack. Making it up. (laughs) Making it up. Um, But really trying to hold them in the background rather than them becoming the work. Yeah, I was thinking experimentation in sort of the scientific way, not not experimentation Mm. like on a May long weekend, for instance. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's right. So uh, I've got a couple of wrap-up questions, just sort of a little lighter perhaps. And this is one of my new favorite questions, which is, 
on your journey through all of your your learning and things, what is one thing that you would want to pass on as advice to a teenager today? And I always ask this because my daughter is a teenager. She actually turned 17 yesterday. So that's the the origins of this this question. Advice for a teenager. My advice um, as a dad you might not like. My advice would be be brave. Because the things that often get in the way of us in life come from our own limitations of our thinking for what we can do and what is possible, not only for ourselves but others. Easy for me to say I haven't got a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do, Sharon, but mine's not a parenting mine's not parenting advice in, in a sense that I was thinking it's something about, um, you know, in life sometimes we get a lot of security from what we think we know. But over the years I've learned to embrace um, the security you get from valuing what you don't know and that you don't have to know it all, but you can really yeah, appreciate what it is that you don't know. You, you don't have to have all the answers. You just need all the questions. Yeah. I, I was going to follow that with, you know, it seems like that would go into the confidence to be able to, to uncover what you need to uncover in any, in any situation, right? Because it's, yeah. it's not about already knowing it's about being able to discover, I guess. I like that one. The last question I have is uh, a book recommendation. And I always uh, I always ask for a book recommendation because it adds to my reading list, which is ridiculously long at this point. Is there a book that you normally give as a gift, would normally give as a gift or recommend that's top of top of mind? The book, I wouldn't give this as a gift, but the book that I most recommend to people is Bob Flood's Rethinking the Fifth Dis- Discipline, Learning Within the Unknowable. And he wrote it like many years ago. It's not like it's a it's a current text, but I just really like his his way of of challenging the thinking so that it's not only structures and processes, but mindset and power. Hmm. And within that book, he talks about it in ways that are really easy to understand. You don't have to. Sometimes um, other books in this on the same area, um, as much as I think he's an amazing man, Peter Senge. You know, I have to read it three or four times. I'm not that bright, you know, whereas um, this particular book I think really helps you be accessible to what systems thinking really is in the real world. Excellent. And building on that, I'm thinking we're getting a bit, putting together a bit of a puzzle here, Sharon. I'm thinking Adam Kane's Collaborating with the Enemy. Mm. And it really shakes up the constructs that we have about how we collaborate and who we collaborate with and our notion of valuing sameness over diversity and difference. So I think that's a that's an awesome compliment to your book as well, Sharon. <laughs> I reckon if we put those two together, we've got quite the reading list. Mm. I'm adding them both uh, both to my list. I can tell you that. I've had Adam uh, on the podcast, and I've read a couple of his books already, and I have not read this one yet, though. Ah, so I, oh, I my gift good. to you. <laughs> I, will, I will add it to the list. I want to say thank you for taking the time and sharing your experience and your insights on collaboration today. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I loved that conversation. It's so much fun to have a conversation with two people who clearly work well together, truly like one another, and actually draw energy from one another. And it was really apparent in the conversation we had today. A couple of ideas stand out in my mind from our conversation. The first is the power of diversity. Of course, we think of diversity first as the people in the room. 
but Sharon and Jennifer speak to how we should also think about diversity from the perspectives of data and community and relationships. I think why this idea has stuck in my head is that diversity then extends into how the group works, in other words, its processes, and how it can govern itself. It seems that high diversity requires maybe a higher level of flexibility and a higher level of equanimity so that the group can kind of take the shape and the form that's most useful to itself. The second idea that stands out to me is this idea of authority in a group and how with a diverse group of people, there may be many currents and cross currents of authority. As individuals, we are very likely to be completely blind to some of these currents and knowing that we have these blind spots should change how we navigate. The example Sharon described of respecting Indigenous law really illustrates this idea of authority. It also highlights the benefit of having a diversity of facilitator perspectives available so that you can navigate the currents and the cross currents and that they can all be recognized and respected. Thank you for listening. If you could do me one favor, it would be this. Share this episode with someone you think would appreciate the conversation. Send them the link to the show and then ask them after what they thought. If you took something specific from this episode that you found insightful or helpful, post a comment about it on your favorite podcast platform. Until the next time, thank you for listening and happy collaborating. You've been listening to Cool Collaborations. Please make sure you visit collaboration-dynamics.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, in Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to sign up for our mailing list so interesting things like blog posts, upcoming training, or collaboration tips and tricks can come to your inbox. If you like what you heard, I'd be grateful for a rating in Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you'd like to just tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. Check out the show notes for links and contact information. Until the next episode, thanks and happy collaborating.